Hello, YouTube crew. This is a special one for you. This is the first three chapters of my audiobook, Jungle Ate My Hamster. It plots the tale of a young, up-and-coming DJ as he navigates the world of aggressive dance music, low-quality narcotics, dystopian call centres, attempts to get laid, another ludicrous, farcical situations. It's a teaser. It's being serialised currently on the Threshold Patreon, and you can get more episodes. There are more episodes of it already, and it's being serialised approximately every week until it finishes. If you enjoy it, then the easiest way to get more episodes is just to go to patreon.com slash thresholdfm. And if you support for just $5 a month, you will get all the audio for it. You can either listen to it with the special podcast link, which will mean you can put that into your podcast app of choice, if that's Apple Podcasts or Overcast or Stitcher or whatever, and listen to it through there with a private special link for you. Or you can listen to it on the Patreon website or through the Patreon app. I hope you like it. This is, as I say, a teaser. So... If you do, head on over to patreon.com slash threshold.fm. If you enjoy it, let me know. And now I bring you Jungle Ate My Hamster. Jungle Ate My Hamster by William Rankin. Read by William Rankin. All, some, or none of this book may be true. The names have been changed to protect the guilty. Chapter 1. That was sick. I stood bent double over the toilet bowl in the economy carriage of the 2.45pm Eurostar from Paris to London St Pancras. The petty déjeuner I had wolfed down in a rush just an hour ago lay emaciated in the toilet bowl. It stared up at me like a wounded animal, immobilised, terrified, and knowing full well the end was near. Rather you than me, pal, I whispered quietly as I flushed it out of its misery. Last night's exploits had left my brain feeling like an abandoned puppy in a bin bag. It tragically whimpered as it poured the inside of my skull and tried to gnaw its way out through my eyes. The sound of one of David Dimbleby's offspring ran through the train like a church bell covered in expensively educated shit. Why? Why here? Why has my timeline had to cross with David Dimbleby's teenage children at this precise moment? His eldest barked across the carriage. Bongo's dad was there. Arms dealer, apparently. Sells shit to the Saudis. Fucking loaded. He bet a small fortune on some seven-to-one nag and the bastard came through. Bought the horse for her afterwards, and it broke its fucking leg the next week. Probably ended up in a Lidl's lasagna. Poor bastard, I thought. A horse, not Bongo's dad. There was always some sort of incongruous celebrity on the Eurostar. Dimbleby and his children was today's unpalatable offering. Last time it was Jarvis Cocker with a pack of no less than eight small children, all of different races, colours and creeds, joyfully playing together in the aisle while Jarvis screamed blue murder at some poor bastard on the other end of a comically oversized smartphone. Something regarding a territory dispute or a missing dog or an Ocado delivery, couldn't quite be sure. I've seen that guy from Teachers more than once. Not the main one, the other one. 
The one who looks like if you'd met him, it'd be really sickeningly nice, all cloying and saccharine sweet in a way that would make you immediately hate him, but would make your girlfriend instantly fall in love with him. This would inevitably lead to an argument where suddenly, surprise, surprise, you're the arsehole. But he was the arsehole. He was clearly the arsehole. The carriage rattled and twitched its way towards the tunnel as I considered the option of attempting to sleep in the toilet. The legroom was far superior to my allotted seat, and as a unique selling point, it was a socially acceptable place to vomit. My thoughts were quickly dashed when someone started banging on the door like they were being chased by a horde of zombies. Attempting to compose myself, I glanced briefly in the mirror and realised all bets were off. I opened the door to reveal a child who promptly began to piss all over the floor. I watched for a moment in quiet awe as he made no attempt whatsoever to aim at the bowl. Just a child, playing by his own rules, with no cares for social norms, who might be watching or what others might think. Living his best life, a true renegade, and maybe the last of a dying breed. I soon realised I was a grown man watching someone else's child urinate, so I decided to return to my seat before I was lynched and thrown off the train. The beads of sweat on my forehead were starting to band together in an effort to storm my eyebrows and make a break for the lower half of my face. The carriage was at a temperature that would surely be deemed a human rights abuse. DJs probably aren't considered human in the eyes of the law, so I thought maybe I'd stick to crying about it on Twitter rather than getting Amnesty International on the case. I started to look forward to maybe having another little sick in the gentle peace of the disabled toilet at St Pancras. Disabled toilets are great for being sick in. They have handrails, a larger bowl, and a panic button in case it all gets too much for you. The night before had ultimately been a success. I played records to a good-sized room of people who certainly looked as if they were enjoying themselves. Would they remember it? Would they remember me? Did anyone know who I was? Did they even care? I was concentrating extremely hard on not being sick. Harder than I'd ever concentrated on anything at school. I'd focus my eyesight on a single point of the seat in front of me. I told myself that if I can maintain that focus of energy, then everything will be okay. That was the sort of concentration level those Indian gurus who can make stuff move using the power of their minds must achieve. If anything, I was probably concentrating harder than any of those bendy weirdos. I began to wonder if maintaining this level of piercing concentration might cause the seat in front of me to spontaneously combust. I could definitely tweet about that. That'd get me retweets through the fucking nose. Everything will be okay. Maintain a steady stream of concentration and everything will be okay. Tea, coffee or a soft drink, sir? I was sick in my mouth. As I watched the colour slowly drain from the hostess's face, my mind wandered back to a time, aged 13, when aboard the school bus I was tragically and quite obscenely sick all over my bright red fat face fleece. I had protested to my father that very morning that I was in a state quite unfit for the outside world, let alone the oppressive workhouse of secondary school. I lobbied that I would remain in bed until further notice and any homework I may or may not have to hand in that day would be a write-off. He understandably dismissed it as nonsense and I was booted out the front door at the hurry-up with my marching orders and distinct lack of homework. I made it roughly one-third of the 30-minute bus ride before emptying the contents of my poor little tum-tum all over my torso and legs. There will be few who will have not witnessed on television footage of foolhardy Spaniards hot-footing it down the street being chased by charging bulls. While the scene aboard the top deck of the school bus was not dissimilar, only I was the bull. A 13-year-old blondie-haired bull. A 13-year-old blondie-haired bull all covered top-to-toe in regurgitated cocoa pops and a healthy dose of shame. Within five to ten seconds, I was alone at the front of the bus, and for ten rows back, 
The seats were a ghost town. It's things like that that can scar a child for life, and this was no exception. I managed to make it home from the Eurostar without further incident. Everyone was very understanding, and even though I offered, the hostess said that there would be no need for me to pay her dry cleaning bills. The uniform was cleaned on site, and she had a change of clothes back at the station. As we exited the train at St Pancras, I saw Dimbleby and his pompous offspring again. They chuckled charmlessly about something of little to no significance, knowing nothing of the unpleasantness that had besieged economy class. I thought to myself that I must press my agent to have first class only added to my booking contract. But who was I kidding? I was not first class material. I was too ripe even for economy class. I required an underclass carriage fitted with white clean seats, a functional drainage system and noxious cleaning products close to hand. Today had proved that way beyond reasonable doubt. I was the top shelf mag with the blacked out packaging of the travel world. I was that asshole you were forced to sit next to on a busy train, bus or plane, eating the smelly food, doing weird shit on his laptop with buzzing headphones and laughing to himself maniacally about something probably too puerile to mention. I was truly a pleasure to travel with. Chapter 2. In the middle of our street. The state of our house was appalling. It was like a bomb had gone off in the clap clinic. It was unfit to house pigs, in my opinion, but as the landlord frequently stressed, the rent was only £50 a week for the much desirable Seven Dials area of Brighton, and so far, no one had died there. It was not the sort of place you'd want to bring a girl back to, although what choice did we have? The problem was, after staying once, they'd never return, either in person or a phone call. That said, had one returned, I think I would have viewed her morals so loose as to border on mental instability. The fact that none would return surely was a sign that some people, at least, had a sense of decency. This could not be said for any of my housemates. Collected in a room, they would resemble the backstage holding pen for the Jeremy Kyle Ketamine special. I could never quite nail the tagline for the episode that best suited them. Somewhere between, I spent all my benefits on Meow Meow and I have never been happier, and... My brother's K habit is ruining my relationship with my gay step-uncle's lesbian rent boy. It was a sorry state of affairs, but as I mentioned, £50 a week, and so far, no one had died there. Rarely a night would pass without tears, a door coming off its hinges, and me threatening violence upon someone playing the killers at an ear-splitting volume. Most of the house was on ketamine most of the time. It was not rare to come down at 11.30am to find the sitting room filled with dribbling imbeciles writhing about on the carpet like bacteria under a microscope. Their pale complexions sheathed in a thin coating of cold sweat glistening under the snatches of morning sunlight that forced their way through the curtains. The groans, the smells, the stains. I was understandably a man on the edge. It was difficult to tell who lived in the house officially, who was staying with someone else, and who had simply wandered in off the street one night and never left. I spent a couple of weeks getting on quite well with a 22-year-old brummy called Greg, only to discover late one night that he was in fact the jilted lover of an official housemate, Kelly, who was away for two weeks working in Spain. He'd let himself in with one of the many copies of our front door key that was strewn across the city and taken up residency in her room. Many a night had been passed away with much enjoyment, listening to Greg's stories of brothely-type bars he'd accidentally wandered into in Thailand. Tales of a boss-eyed brass who wanted his babies. She tried to whop one up her without a fucking spunk bag on it, he delicately put it. She wanted me to jizz up her. She saw me blonde hair and blue eyes and wanted me babies. I could tell. I've seen the look a hundred times. I believed every repugnant word he uttered and hung on them like a doting fan. 
Small parts of my soul died as he told me of brothels where 25 girls would be brought out and arranged like prizes on a stage, adorned with clouds and Disneyland-style castles. Each was numbered, and you would get to walk up and down like some sort of Simon Cowell X-Factor-style pervy judge and pick the one, two, or six that you wanted. Other places had catalogues with girls in, but Greg advised me not to go there, as is often the way with picking from pictures. The product never lives up to the picture. It's like McDonald's might. You look at the picture and think, wow, that Big Mac looks great, but when it turns up it's all old and shriveled and rubbish. He had such a way with words. I liked him much better than Kelly. She was aggressive, sweaty, and her eyes didn't make sense. On the one hand, they said, listen, I'm just trying to make it through to the afternoon without a drink. And on the other, they said, I killed a man just to watch him die, then I feasted on his earthly soul in order to live another 200 years. Anyhow, there was a certain level of upset achieved when she arrived home. A window smashed, blood all over the washing up, and the police called twice. I often wondered what might become of Brummy Greg, probably sunning himself on a Thai beach surrounded by boss-eyed brasses and blonde-haired babies, the king of a small and peculiar empire. A small part of me suspected he might be a wandering Jew, said to have spat on Christ during the time of the Passion and cursed to walk the earth until the arrival of the Second Coming, where he would be given a chance to repent. It seemed unlikely, but stranger things have happened in this house. In fact, stranger things have happened in the house this week. Chapter 3. From Wigan with Love I was 24 years old, in my prime. I was an up-and-coming young DJ producer who was just about to break into the big league. Five-star hotels, private jets, ham-fistedly scrawling my name on big booed babes, whether they knew who I was or not, and deciding how many of them to take back to my hotel to smear my grubby, semi-erect little member all over until having my tour manager throw them out. Take that, all the girls that laughed at me at school. Take that, bullies. Take that, geography teacher, PE teacher, history teacher. Who's the failure now? I'm surfing in a sea of semi-soiled snatch, and you're probably crying in the staff room because of your lack of abilities to sustain even a basic erection without choking yourself with a set of jumper cables. The truth of the matter was that I was nowhere near the fabled big league. I've been up and coming for about the last six years now, and it was starting to grate on me like sandpaper sanitary towels. This wasn't the plan when on my 15th birthday I received my set of belt-drive turntables and a mixer. I was supposed to have a private jet by now. I was supposed to headline a club in Ibiza. Christ! I was supposed to at least have enough money to live somewhere other than the squalid den of ketamine-based iniquity. Really, I was playing out a couple of times a month and supplementing my income with an endless string of dead-end jobs. Call centres, kitchens, flyering, all the glamorous shit. I've been fired or walked out from over 26 jobs by the time I was 24. I've been threatened with violence, lawsuits and worse by bosses at supermarkets, building sites and nightclubs. You see, if I'm being truly honest, I've never really been part of the team. I did not work well with others. I just couldn't bear to be asked to do something that was stupid and inefficient just because that was the way it was done. That's a stupid way of doing things, I would proclaim as a pizza kitchen manager would tell me to prepare two weeks of pizza toppings, which only had a fridge life of a week. You do what you're told, that's why I pay you, he would announce, as if I should be happy that A, I don't have to think, and B, I actually get paid for not thinking. But you'll lose money and waste food, that's a stupid way to run a business. Just do what I said, you're an idiot. Sorry, what did you say? I said I'm leaving. Oh, you can't leave, you're fired. Well, that doesn't make sense. Get out. At a kebab shop I worked at as a delivery driver, the manager gave me the nickname Godsake Boy. He said, You are Godsake Boy. Whenever I look at you, I think, Oh, Godsake. I'd been hired and fired in a day. 
I've been hired and fired in the same hour. I once went on a week-long training course to learn how to sell double glazing to people in their homes. It takes exactly five working days to learn how to bully the old and the vulnerable into purchasing overpriced, substandard UPVC windows. We were sent all the way up to Wigan to a country hotel which boasted over 30 rooms, four meeting rooms, and a fully functional business area. This consisted of one decrepit Dell PC with dial-up internet and a printer with only yellow ink. I'd arrived late on the Sunday night after a long and painful drive. The drive was to be infinitely more interesting than the rest of the week. It was around 11pm when I was shown to my room. I entered and turned on the light. Loud swearing was suddenly very apparent as I came face to face with a half-naked man who was previously asleep in the bed. Oh God, sorry, I replied, and backed out of the room at the hurry-up. I turned to the member of staff who had escorted me there, expecting to receive an apology, and perhaps an upgrade to a suite with a hot tub and a hand job. But what I got instead was a shake of the head and the knowledge that it was not a mistake, and I was supposed to go in and share a double bed with a half-naked man. Due to the double glazing company having been absolute fucking cowboys in every respect, I was to have a roommate for the week. I don't know how many of you will have shared a double bed with a half-naked man you don't know in a Wigan hotel, knowing the only respite will be the hours you spend learning how to rip off single mums with your tedious knowledge of window-locking mechanisms and Pilkington float glass. There is likely to only be one other person in the world, and Paul, if you're reading this book, sorry about blocking the toilet on Wednesday night. I blame the catering. I met a man on the course who worked for Screwfix. He manned the phones receiving orders back in the day when people rang up to order from a catalogue rather than buying online as they do now. He had been replaced by a computer and was intent on letting everyone know about it, and more to the point that he was better than any computer ever made. From the sounds of things he could have beaten Big Blue at chess with his eyes closed and a crippling hangover. He had with him a 2002 edition of the Screwfix catalogue and would routinely ask people to test him on his knowledge of item codes, price and offered quantity. You'd say, three uh, quarter-inch Phillips head screws, and uh, uh, yeah, and he'd say, DGHJ0001, you can have them in 100s, 500s and 1000s with a price break of 10% at 1000 units. There you go, better than a computer, he'd remark and look very pleased with himself. Yes, but you're not better than a computer though, are you? I responded. That's why you lost your job and you're stuck here with the rest of us losers, wondering where we'll get a room to ourselves so we can have a five-minute cry-wank. But I can do anything that's in the catalogue. Test me again. I don't want to test you again. Look, can you make porn come up on your face that people can watch, enjoy, and playfully tug one out to? What? Of course not. What are you on about? He looked deeply confused. He said, well, you're not better than a computer then, are you? Can I use you to check my Hotmail account and download an illegal copy of the new Nickelback album? Well, I've got the new Nickelback album on my phone, he said with a victorious look in his eye. Yes, I bet you have. I have. Oh, please kill me. Chapter 3. Surprise Boners I quit on the first day of working for the Double Glazing Company. All I had to do was take one look at the sad, scared eyes of the dear, sweet old man that had been bullied into letting a UPVC window scumbag like myself come round his house. He was a good old boy with a face that had been carved out of wood, ornately decorated with a lifetime of lines and wrinkles, each telling its own tale, like the rings inside a tree trunk. They don't build men like that anymore. He was an early model that had been long since updated with better symmetry and cleaner lines, but flimsier, bug-prone software. He invited me in nonetheless, and offered me a glass of port. We chatted about the war for easily an hour. He'd only been a boy but had the job of riding his bike round the corridors of a big hotel ringing his bell when there was an air raid. 
He worked on the railways the rest of his life and had been retired for ten years. I told him about the week I'd spent up in Wigan, and he said if he had his way, they'd all be lined up and shot. Perhaps a little authoritarian, I thought, but I didn't disagree. I drove to the office and gave them back the window they had given me for demonstration purposes, which promptly fell on the floor and broke into tiny pieces. I told them that I'd not be returning. I walked to my car, drove two minutes down the road, and was promptly crushed almost to death by an 18-wheeler lorry. It had cut across my lane without indicating to turn left. It was a low-speed impact, crushing the car in the articulated part of the lorry. The driver hadn't noticed that I was there, neither before the turn, nor as he began to slowly crush me. I could hear people on the pavement screaming as the car got smaller and smaller. Luckily, he stopped just before the steering wheel entered my face. I managed to climb frantically out of the window and fell to the ground unhurt. I thought the steering was a bit heavy, came a chipper little voice from behind me. The driver was standing by the car, shaking his head and chuckling to himself. I like to feel that if I had not been in a severe state of shock, I would have knocked him into unconsciousness and beyond with my fists, feet and forehead. But instead, I chose to once more vomit onto my legs. This was becoming a theme. I was now without a car and without a job. Luckily, all was not lost. I still had my life, and every few weeks, I got to jet off and do a show. That was what it was all about, my reason for being alive. That was why I worked the shit jobs, that was why I spent every spare moment making music, and that was why I hadn't gone to university. Maybe the uni thing had something to do with me failing most of my GCSEs, double C in science excluded, but there's no need to go into that now, or maybe even ever. Performing was what I was built to do, and every minute behind the decks was golden, even if I was playing to ten people in a converted public toilet in Hammersmith. Not only did I get to do gigs, but sometimes I actually got to do gigs abroad, fly over to another country for a night and then fly back. Sometimes I'd be in the country for less than 12 hours. Sometimes I'd get a flight out there landing at 11pm, go straight to the club, rock out for a few hours, and then be taken straight back to the airport for the 6am flight home. It was punishing at times, but that was just the punishment I was after. That and the Polish girl from the cafe around the corner, but we'll go into that later. It was all about the ritual with shows abroad. Humans crave ritual, and it's the only way to appease the gods. You had to do it right or not at all. Drum and bass legend John B calls it being an airport ninja, the act of getting through an airport efficiently, elegantly, and with the least possible fuckery. Getting through security is the part where most people go to pieces. The gel and paste Nazis get all up in their faces and people fall apart like dunk biscuits. They crumble like hobnobs in a schoolboy's pocket. They flap their arms around, forget to take their belts off, don't decant the pocket change into the tray, accidentally try and smuggle a kilo of black tar heroin through customs, you name it. They didn't scare me. My travel toothpaste was so small it barely showed up on the x-ray and I had no further liquids, paste, gels, creams, lotions, potions, tonics or kilos of black tar heroin. I didn't wear trousers that required a belt. My feet were adorned with easy to take off and put on shoes. No elaborate clothing and a bag with pockets you can stick all your phones, wallets and accoutrements in at a moment's notice. I was an airport ninja. I was the Bruce Lee of Gatwick South Terminal. Well, that was until EasyJet had anything to do with it. I would stroll up to the EasyJet flight with my head held high and my hand luggage, all nicely fitting into the twatty little orange box thing they have at the front of the queue. I would wait patiently while the speedy boarding fascists got on the flight first, and then politely and calmly I would run as fast as I could with my elbows out, smashing all and sundry out of the way to get an exit row seat. Being six foot four inches tall, legroom was of the utmost importance, even on short flights. 
The very notion of a budget airline was enough to turn people into animals, all squealing and shrieking like pigs in an abattoir, desperately clambering over each other, all knowing the end could be soon and getting a decent seat for Armageddon was absolutely essential. Flights that boasted allocated seats were a wholly different affair. People didn't run, push or bite. They just strolled along, stowed their luggage in the overhead locker and took their seats. Why the need for the screaming? Why the tears? Why the bloody knuckles and the eye gouging? Why descend to the level of mere beasts just for the sake of paying £20 less? You'll all get a seat. You'll all be forced to pay for the depressing sandwiches and you will all have to put up with the incessant high-volume noise that spews from the air host's mouth into the tannoy and out across the aircraft. EasyJet is by no means the worst. Ryanair are leaps and bounds ahead in the world champion scumbag stakes. €40 if you don't check in online. That's right, if you go to the airport and go to check in at the desk, just check in normally. They charge you €40 for the pleasure. €30 if your hair is parted on the wrong side. €20 if your face doesn't match the regulation level of symmetry. They don't check the size of your carry-on bag when you check in. They let you get to the point where you're just about to get on the plane, and then they demand to see if it fits in their tiny little bastard box thing. And if it doesn't, they loudly shame you in front of the whole queue and charge you €40 Euros for the pleasure. So you think you're special in some way, do you, sir? You think that you deserve more space on board than the rest of these decent, honest, hard-working people? Your oversized bag contains what? Maybe the cure for cancer? Maybe some previously unpublished works of Shakespeare? The secret to solving world hunger? No? Well then cough up the 40 euros and take yourself, your overpriced bag and whatever flea-bitten horse you rode in on and fuck off. They stroll up and down the boarding queue like a prison officer, picking people out to check their baggage size before the inevitable showering of shame. They hawk queue jump passes as if they were VIP tickets for some sleazy bottle service club. Roll up, roll up for the Ryanair disco. Only $40 to talk to the girls, $50 for a drink and $60 to use the toilet. I always felt it would have been more honest to simply punch each flyer in the face and take the money out of their wallets. I'd have felt less victimised by that. I've never really been a good flyer. The idea of something so big and stupid looking that could get off the ground safely and effectively and then land in one place was such a ludicrous concept that I can't believe people willingly entertained it. Sure, I would love to get into your giant metal death box and hurtle across the ocean surrounded by fat, stinking gobshites all hell-bent on making my life a misery. The only thing I fear more than the plane crashing is that when the hostess walks up and down checking the aircraft for people wearing their seatbelts, they'll be caught with the tip of a boner accidentally poking out the top of my trousers. I'm not saying it has happened. I'm not saying it will happen. I'm just saying it could happen. One of those unexplained surprise boners that comes out of nowhere. Maybe it's the hum of the engine, the warm seats, or the close quarters. You can never quite be sure. All you do know is that it could hit any time. Just one of those many hells that men all over the world are forced to live with on a daily basis. Picture the embarrassment, if you will. You've had a tough morning. You decided to wake early to indulge the hotel breakfast despite only getting back to your room from the red-hot disco night spot you've just destroyed with banging tunes a few hours before. You're hungry, really hungry, and the only thing keeping you going is the idea of a decent hotel fry-up. But then, as you enter the dining room, all you see are some cold sliced meats and cheeses and a few bits of old bread that look like they fell out of a dead horse's arse. Surely this is some kind of a mistake. So you find a member of staff. Sorry, sir, we don't do cook breakfast. Mortified, you stagger back to your room, collect all your stuff into a bag, minus the phone charger and earplugs, which of course you leave in the hotel room, and head for the airport. 
Olymp McDonald's is the only option, and as much as it's awful, immoral and unfashionable, it fills a hole. You struggle for a while to access the airport Wi-Fi with little or no success, and head for the plane. Sat as comfortably as one can on the plane, and out of nowhere, boom, it hits. Sure, no problem, you think. I'll just slip that bad boy up and tuck his little head under my belt. No worries, he can sleep it off like a cheeky little dormouse that has had too much fizzy pop at a birthday party. But somehow, the little rascal has managed to breach the top of your trousers, and unbeknownst to you, he's sneaking a peek over the top of the trench. A little bell-end sniper, picking off his next unsuspecting victim. The air hostess doesn't need this in her life. She's tired, she's just finished a four and a half hour flight from Israel. She shouldn't really be at work anyway. She's just got over the flu and out of a long-term relationship. Poor sod. She's doing a really solid job of holding it together and getting on with her day until... Hello, sir. Just check your seatbelt. And oh, holy mother of God! Oh, for the love of sweet baby Jesus and all the angels in heaven. Oh, the horror of it! Or something similar. She faints dead away and has to be carried off the plane. The plane is delayed for God knows how long and a woman is scarred for life. I'm not a good passenger as such, but I'm a damn sight better than some of the mouth-breathing bugalogs I've had the misfortune of sitting next to in the past. I was forced to sit between a couple from somewhere northern and rubbish as they were in a mood with each other and needed some space. Perhaps they had seen me as the Berlin Wall for their own personal Cold War, but as soon as we took off they decided to give each other both barrels. I was caught in the crossfire and trying my best to ignore them by watching Spartacus Blood and Sand, which is A, terrible, and B, the worst possible programme to watch on public transport, as every other scene is someone getting a solid noshing from their living mistress, or a queen of some sort getting a sound seeing to from a gladiator with pecs the size of a Welsh mining village. Okay, I take that back about it being terrible. He was in the automotive trade. And if I was ever in Kentucky and needed a discount SUV, he was just the man to call. He had two children, one boy, one girl, both ugly as sin on account of his and the mother's genes falling at the lower end of the gene pool. The daughter was big into pulling out her eyebrows due to an obsessive compulsion rather than fashion, and they'd given up on trying to stop her. Apparently, back in them olden times, pulling out your eyebrow hair was extremely fashionable, and they hoped it would come back around. He had a sadness about him as he told me about this that I thought only existed in films. I bought him a double Jack Daniels on the rocks. He took the miniature, screwed the top back on and put it in his bag saying he'd save it for later. I couldn't bring myself to tell him that this is 100% absolutely not what you do when someone buys you a drink and realised perhaps, thinking about it, life was dealing him the rough hand he actually deserved. There were many of his tragic kind on the flights I took but their tragedy paled in significance to the true walking catastrophes that plagued the call centre I had just accepted a job in. That place was a Greek tragedy on a three-day speed come down, and it was to be my vocational home for the foreseeable future. Thank you for supporting this audio series on the Threshold Patreon. You're an absolute fucking legend, and I love you dearly. <laughs>